Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we explore the hip-hop sublime, a term coined by Adam Crims to account for the production style of gangster rap. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. By many accounts, gangster rap begins in 1985 with Schooly D, a hip-hop entrepreneur, record producer, and rapper uh, with the tune PSK, What Does It Mean? PSK, of course, refers to Parkside Killers, a gang in Philadelphia to which Schooly D belonged or was loosely associated. Everything in this album is a production by Schooly D. He hand-drew the, uh, the, the record jackets. He... he designed the um, the drum uh, part, right, uh, plays it, and, and, and design is not a sample, it's a beat that he composed. It's a tune that dramatizes and glamorizes gang life, but only refers to it in a kind of oblique manner. The production is menacing and lo-fi, right? His flow stands in stark contrast, and it was incredibly influential, as we'll see, but it stands in stark contrast to other rappers of that era of, of roughly 1985. It's a very relaxed, conversational flow, almost conspiratorial, like he's telling you something uh, in confidence. And throughout, he uses this descending pitch motive. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? This slightly descending pitch motive. The first person narrative is of a gangster turned rapper who does drugs, has sex with a prostitute, hears another rapper stealing his flow, considers killing him, but instead steals his show, upstages him. Now, this tune, as important as it is, had local success for the most part, but it was heard by one West Coast artist, and that was, of course, Ice-T. Ice-T was so taken with this tune that he wanted to do his own version of it, but he wanted it to be less uh, obscure in his references to, to gang violence. And so he produces Six in the Morning in 1986. Right. In fact, he recognizes that both his flow, that descending pitch, and his uh, approach to the narrative is so close to what Schooly D did that he contacted Schooly D and asked for permission. And in interviews, whenever he talks about Six in the Morning, he says, you know, some people might think of it as a bite, meaning they might think of it as, uh, as a cop-out, uh, something that I ripped off from someone else cop-out's not the right word, a rip-off, right? And he says, but it's not exactly that. It's an homage, and I was building on it. I was doing what he was doing, but making it more direct, more visceral, in essence. That same year, Boogie Down Productions with KRS-One uh, releases 9mm nine millimeter Goes Bang, right? That same year, 1986. And the following year, they released the album Criminally Minded, which is the first uh, rap album to feature uh, guns on the cover, right? So directly aligning themselves with um, this portrayal of the hood, of, of the ghetto. In 1987, Public Enemy releases Yo! Bum Rush the Show. And at first, uh, th that album is received as being very much within the aesthetic, the production aesthetic of Def Jam Records. 
right? And indeed, listen to the, the drumming. Um, listen to the fact that Vernon Reed is on guitar, right? Um, much like the um, Beastie Boys had uh, the Slayer guitarist play on, on one of their tracks. You have Vernon Reed on some of the tracks on, on that album of you know, Bum Rush the Show. It was, even though you already have the Bomb Squad in place, right? The, the Shockley Brothers and, and Eric Sadler, and that's the, the production team of, of Public Enemy. They're already there, and there are already some things that sound very much like what we are accustomed to in Public Enemy, the, the fuller production sound. It was still received very much within the Def Jam aesthetic. The reviews of the time termed it minimalistic, right? And sometimes commented on Vernon Reed's contributions, his guitar contributions. Vernon Reed, of course, from the band Living Color, a very... Uh, uh, dissonant and, and kind of uh, playing outside of the normal parameters of, of tonality. Uh, that's what he's known for, right? And what he brings uh, to that album as well. But it was the next album that really had an influence on gangster rap, even though we probably wouldn't think of Public Enemy as the epitome in any sense of gangster rap, as really representative of gangster rap at all. Yet the sound has a huge impact on gangster rap and really hardcore rap in general. And that's the production sound of the, of the 1988 album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, right? And this is uh, an important year for the rise of gangster rap, in part because of this, the production of the Bomb Squad, where what you have is a maximalist approach. There's no way you can call this album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, uh, minimalist, right? Even the most tone-deaf uh, reviewer is not going to think of this as a minimalist production. This is maximalism. This is piling things on. And we're going to talk more about the production of the Bomb Squad and its influence on gangster rap in the third segment. So we'll come back to this, right? Uh, the other thing, of course, in 1988 is the NWA album, Straight Outta Compton. So whatever Ice-T had been doing, whatever Schoolie D had been doing, Toddy T and some of the other early gangster rap uh, artists, it was really this album, Straight Outta Compton, that gave gangster rap an identity, in part because of the controversial song, Fuck the Police, right? And at that very moment, what happens is that... Uh, Gangster rap becomes not only a commercial juggernaut, but a political um, point of contestation. In 1991, NWA releases their follow-up album, right? Um, and that becomes the first number one hardcore rap album on the Billboard uh, 200. And part of this is the story of SoundScan, of, of, of the fact that there's no Billboard is no longer relying upon um, certain record stores uh, voluntarily offering up information about what's selling the best, which, of course, leaves room for corruption and everything else. Rather, the numbers are coming from the scans, uh, from the SoundScan technology. Um, and so this really changes the way people think about Hardcore rap. They realize that it's much more popular than had been previously assumed. And that given the neighborhoods in which the numbers are coming from, right, from which the numbers are coming, it's not only popular in the inner city, it's popular in the suburbs. It's popular in areas mostly populated by whites. And so the major record companies realize that gangster rap and hardcore rap in general is big business. 
Now that album is also the beginning of, of Dr. Dre's G-Funk sound, right, with songs like Always Into Something, but it also includes uh, tracks that are much more influenced from the Bomb Squad uh, production, or at least that's how I hear it. I, I imagine there's room for debate here. But listen to the first real track after the, the prelude, right? Um where they're claiming that the real ones, the real gangsters don't die. They don't use the word gangsters. They use a word I'm not going to use, right? Um, but listen to the production of that song, of that track. It's layers upon layers of conflicting uh, timbres and conflicting sounds. And we're going to come back to that track in a bit when we come to the third um, segment. It also has the tune Appetite for Destruction, um, and this is getting closer to what Adam Crims is going to call uh, the hip-hop sublime, if it's not a full instantiation of it. And again, we'll come back to that in the third segment. So this is the explosion of gangster rap into popularity, and indeed, gangster rap becomes the dominant rap sound, in many ways, of the 1990s. It's not that there weren't other very important genres and subgenres of rap, but this is the one that captured the popular attention, in part because it became such a source of controversy. You had certain figures that were making their name, at least at that moment, they might have already had a name from, from other um, achievements. For instance, C. Dolores Tucker, right, an important um, figure within the civil rights movement. She makes a name for herself again in the 1990s as being a stark opponent of gangster rap, labeling it as misogynistic and glorifying violence, all the kinds of things you might expect uh, would happen with a, a genre known as gangster rap. Calvin Butts uh, also is, is lecturing against the evils of, of gangster rap. Then you have the various political uh, quandaries or, 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 or contestations, right? Uh, as part of the um, re-election push for the first George Bush, you have his vice president, Dan Quayle, um, speaking against Tupac's album, Tupacalypse Now, right? Which has the song Trapped on it which is about the, um, the self-defense killing of a cop by the, the narrator in the song. Supposedly, this tune was playing when a, a man, um, or this album was playing when a man killed a cop in the South, right? And the man's lawyer claimed that, that the assailant was um, perverted, more or less, by listening to, he was, he was revved up by listening to this album, and that's what led. It's a... It, it was a, a pretty flimsy claim on the defense lawyer's part, but Dan Quayle held on to that and had a series of pretty um, popular, at least among some people, uh, campaign speeches where he rails against the evils of gangster rap. But don't think that this is just a Republican thing. Clinton did the same thing. Clinton appeared at a, uh, at a talk where he railed against Sister Soldier, a, a um, hip-hop activist and artist who was associated with Public Enemy, right? Where he too says that there's no such place, there's no place within, the, um, within public discourse for this kind of glorification of, of violence. It's around this time that claims start to be made that 80% of gangster rap is being sold to white suburban kids. Now, Bakari Kitwana in his book, Why White Kids Love Hip Hop, says, and I, I think he, he demonstrates it as well as one can de demonstrate a negative, that there's no real source for this claim, 
right? You see it in a whole lot of, um, of publications, including publications that I admire quite a bit, that claim that 60 to 80% of uh, gangster rap albums were sold to white suburban kids. Now, it's clear from the sound scan information that these albums were selling in white neighborhoods or largely white neighborhoods, right? Um, but the exact numbers, uh, a, a person from sound from the um, sound scanner from Billboard maybe, who was interviewed by um, Kitwana, says that in order to to glean this very famous eighty percent statistic, you have to do a lot of creative reading of the actual data, right? And yet that statistic stuck. And this there was this idea then that what's happening is. Uh, gangster rap is being marketed as a certain depiction of blackness that sells very well to whiteness. This came up in a interview between Bell Hooks, right, the um, intersectionalist uh, feminist writer, and uh, Ice Cube, of course, a former member of NWA at that point, several records deep into his solo career. She says, she asks this, if the major buying audience is white and we want that audience, to what extent do we compromise ourselves in trying to reach that audience? And Ice Cube responds, well, see, I feel that I've gotten the most success by not compromising. And I say it in interviews that I do records for black kids and white kids are basically eavesdropping on my records, end quote. This is an interesting exchange in a number of ways, right? This idea that, that white people or white kids, in this case, are listening to something that's not theirs. They're eavesdropping. They're listening in on another. Now, there's a certain amount of false consciousness, I would claim, as much as I admire Ice Cube, I would claim there's a certain amount of false consciousness that's operative in his dodge. And that's what I take it to be, right? He may or may not be making records for, for black kids, right? For what he thinks should be represented to blackness. I, I can buy that part of the argument. But he's also got to be aware that there's a large buying public here that's white. And it's impossible to make these records without that awareness having some impact on what he's doing, right? And whether it's black kids or white kids, he realizes, as anybody in that genre does, that violence and misogyny sell well. The court controversy and controversy brings attention and attention brings ears and ears, of course, bring dollars. Bell Hooks, in a different article, claims that the, that the point of gangster rap for the larger um, music economy, and really for the larger public as a whole, right, for the public consciousness, is that it allows for the hegemony, the largely white majority, mostly of, of men, and that's who she's thinking of, right, of the patriarchy, ultimately, is what she's claiming. It allows the patriarchy to enjoy vicariously the expression of misogyny and violent misogyny at that, and hatred and contention in ways that they would not be able to express on their own within a public forum and not be castigated. And so here what you're doing, and this is, I think, a clever argument by Hooks, right? That what's happening here is you're allowing, you're, you're not only allowing these things to be said, these uh, anti-woman uh, and, and um, pro-violent 
uh, rhetoric. You're not only spewing these things that we would normally think of as being below the level of public discourse. You're not only allowing those things to be said, but you're promoting them, right? And you're making a great deal of money off of them. And what that allows for, for the audience, according to Bell Hooks, is this kind of safety valve. You're able to do a couple of things. You're able to enjoy your own unspoken misogyny and violent hatred, but you're able to point to someone else and say, no, that's what they're saying, and I'm listening in. In essence, Eve's, uh, Ice Cube is allowing for an excuse um, for the, the various audience members here, that they're eavesdropping, that this isn't what they believe. They're listening to this in the same way that uh, none of us really necessarily want to be Scarface, and yet we enjoy that movie and its depictions of violence as a kind of cathartic release. And yet, you know, plenty of people do in some way want to be Scarface. He represents uh, some kind of anti-heroic um, uh, expression of anger and violent release that people seem to obviously admire, that they're drawn to. Now, it's clear that if we're going to understand gangster rap, we have to bring a few things into coordination. Uh, it's, it's easy for, for politicians like Dan Quayle or Bill Clinton to dismiss gangster rap as being this isolated uh, expression of a certain kind of blackness that is abhorrent, right? It's also easy to see the um, record companies as being totally self-involved, as they, of course they are, and that what they're doing is they're putting out these records where they know they can make maximum profit off of controversy. But what I think we need to do is instead of, of looking for someone to vilify, instead of looking for someone to blame, it might be more interesting to see this for what it is. Mediation, right? What you're dealing with here is not... Uh, an actual purview onto the ghetto or onto ghetto violence, right? And, and by the way, Robin DJ uh, Kelly describes this form of rap. Uh, actually, he describes all of rap, but uh, Adam Crims, and we'll get to him in the, in the next segment. Adam Crims claims that really it applies most to um, gangster rap. And what Kelly says is that, that rap is involved in what he calls ghetto centricity, right? That it erases the differences among black people, right? There are black senators, uh, there are black businessmen, there are black lawyers, and sure, there are black and white gang members and black and white criminals, right? The, the same stratification of possibilities applies across the races, right? Even if um, there are some systemic and, and structural uh, resistances toward black people maybe becoming senators or maybe becoming successful businessmen or lawyers, it's still obviously possible since it exists, right? And so what Kelly's arguing is that what rap does is it focuses black identity on one subsection of the black experience, the ghetto. And so therefore it exhibits ghetto centricity. But this is mediation, obviously, right? When, no matter how authentic you take any of these artists to be, even if they actually went out and killed somebody and then rapped about it, I'm making something up here, right, as a thought experiment, 
When they rap about it, that's still mediation. They're still giving you a representation. As soon as I put something into words, I'm changing it inevitably. I can't help but do so, no matter how uh, tied to authenticity I claim to be. But the interesting thing about gangster rap is it attempts to, in some sense, overcome its representational stance. It attempts to feel, to, to try to feel immediate, right? And so it's a representation that tries to erase its representation uh, status, in essence. Now, I said that I don't, I'm not looking for someone to vilify, but I think what we need to do when we're trying to understand the phenomenon of gangster rap is we need to coordinate among these various trajectories. On the one hand, we have the record companies that see, after the second NWA album, that there is room for a massive amount of profit here. And they're going to exploit that market like they would exploit any other market. No one expects the record companies to be virtuous, right? Although I suppose uh, we might expect them to not uh, go beyond the pale of business practices, right? But they're out for profit. On the other hand, you have the hip-hop artists, right? People that are looking for success, some of whom may be cynically uh, exaggerating uh, aspects of the of the ghetto or of, of ghetto violence or of misogyny in order to get ears because they know that's a way to do so, right? Ice Cube actually said something along these lines that I think is interesting. He says with each, in that interview with Bell Hooks, he says with each album, he's able to get a little more political. Now he doesn't explore that and Bell Hooks surprisingly doesn't take him up on it. Uh, but I think it's worth thinking about, right? That each album allows him to become more political, as he's building a fan base that trusts him more and more. Well, how did he gain their trust? By giving them what they wanted, what they expected, right? And, what and part of this has to do with audience expectations of blackness. This is where Kelly's notion of ghettocentricity comes in. That for all of the, the, the varieties of the black experience, what's being focused on, at least within this form of entertainment, is ghetto-centricity, is the idea that the authentic black experience is within the ghetto. It involves poverty, it involves violence, it involves a certain access to capitalism that is on the sort of flip side of capitalism, the gangster side, the criminal side, right? It's still concerned with making it, but it's making it despite the circumscribed uh, situation in which uh, people in the ghetto find themselves. Then you, of course, have the political aspect of things, right? The questions of responsibility. Is it, and, and this is, uh, these were all big topics in the 90s when you have Bill Clinton, for, I'm sorry, Bill Cosby making speeches about how uh, impoverished black people have no one but themselves to blame, that they need to uh, reinvigorate themselves with their middle class aspirations instead of being dependent on welfare and so on. You saw with uh, Dan Quayle this idea that, that, uh, that, Black artists are responsible for the violence of their listeners. And then you have also the notion in the mid-90s uh, among the Clintons of the super predators. When Clinton wanted to show that he was tough on crime, right? He defined a certain category of largely black criminals as being super predators. And this brings us back, I think, to the Scarface phenomenon. On the one hand, they're predators, they're criminals. They're people that are to be shunned from society. At the other hand, there's an almost superhuman element to them, right? They're more masculine. They're more effective. They're more capable 
of getting things done than others. So they're the things that, that people both aspire to and negate. And this gives the gangster, whether it's Scarface or the gangster in Gangster Rap, a very special charge, a kind of electric charge, right? And just like an electric charge has a negative and, and positive pole, you can see this within the gangster as well. There's the positive charge of getting things done, of being a kind of capitalist hero, but then there's the negative charge of getting it done through criminality. And that's what gangster rap will work hard to represent, not just with its lyrics, but with its music. And it's a form of, as I said, representation that has to deny its representation. It's a form of uh, mediation that has to feel immediate. And part of how it does that is by tapping into the sublime. So let's turn next to that. Let's start with simple definition. The sublime accounts for that experience in which we come face to face with something that either exhibits such amazing grandeur, a colossal thing like a, a mountain or a mountain range or the depths of the ocean, or it's the encounter with something that seems overwhelmingly powerful, like a tornado, an earthquake, natural disasters. Now, the sublime, of course, isn't just terror, because those things, especially the latter category, can, of course, inspire terror. And yet, the sublime seems to be related to terror, right? And that's what Emin Burke believed. Emin Burke said, quote, or wrote, quote, whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible or is conversant about terrible objects or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling, end quote. So notice that for Burke, this notion of the sublime, of, of, of 
encountering the grandeur of something, something that, that overwhelms our ability to grasp it, right? That for him, that's tied to terror, and that's necessary, because terror is a strong emotion. And so the sublime is playing with, in a sense, a very strong emotion. He also writes, quote, The passion caused by the great and sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended with some degree of horror. Notice, we can already see the complaint Kant is going to have about Burke, that what Burke is doing well is he's illustrating the psychological state of encountering the sublime, but he's not giving us reasons for it, right? What, what makes it happen in this way? But he does say uh, that, that what happens here is we get this uh, impact of, of astonishment, right? And that's uh, our emotions are suspended. We're frozen, in one sense at least, right? Our bodily emotions are frozen. And yet our mind is active. And we're going to come back to that, that issue in a moment, right? So this heightened state of astonishment is where reason is, is driven by what he calls an irresistible force, right? And, quote, the mind is so entirely filled with its object that it cannot entertain another. It's working only with this object, right? And so for Burke, what really um, inspires the sublime is an element of obscurity. We're astonished because we can't figure out how this thing is working, right? And for Burke, obscurity is an absence of clarity. It's an absence of definition, and that can have to do with, with darkness, right, um, or mental uncertainty. It can, and he gives really three sort of categories early on. He says there's darkness, right? And that's why, uh, as he puts it, religious rites of certain sects, certain cults, uh, take place at night because it deepens the mystery. It puts you on edge, right? We all know this. When we uh, walk through, uh, say, the woods in the dark, that's a very different experience than walking through it in the, in the daytime, right? Uh, think about walking even just in, a, in, in your house or your apartment and it's late at night and you can't quite see everything. There's an element of fear that's, that's always on the edge of your experience there. And all you have to do to stop it is turn on that light, right? That's why kids sleep with night lights to break up that obscurity. His next example is vastness. And by this he means the vastness of the ocean, the vastness of the, the, the fall from a precipitous height, from, from, say, a mountaintop, and so on, right? So the sense of being dwarfed by, the, by our surroundings. And then finally, there's, there's infinity, boundlessness, right? So we have darkness, obscurity in, in that sense, obscurity from light, we have vastness, obscurity in the sense that we can't comprehend the, the, um, the, the, the greatness of it all, right? The height or depth of it. And then infinity, which for him he defines as lacking boundaries, right? He writes, quote, Infinity has a tendency to fill the mind with that sort of delightful horror, which is the most genuine effect and truest test of the sublime. So notice that now. Right, this idea that the sublime involves a delightful, delightful horror, and the reason for that is quite simple. What Burke is suggesting is that we don't actually experience the sublime if we are terrified. It's only when we're in a position where we can play with our terror, we can tweak it a little bit, 
without actually panicking in full. The example I often use is the tornado chasers, right? The goal of the tornado, these people that follow the tornado around and they videotape it and they, they ride around in their trucks, they try to get close to it. Now, they want to experience the awesome power of that tornado without having their property destroyed or their lives taken from them. That's the goal, right? You want to get as close as you can while still remaining safe. There are more quotidian examples we might use. Think of the John Hancock building in Chicago where there's a, a um, you know outlook area, a place where you can can look out along the city and one area of that, so all the windows, right? One area has it so that you can stand out over the city street and you can, you're standing on very thick glass, right? And you can look down below you. Now, I have a brother who is terrified of heights. So that's not the sublime for him. It's terrifying. And then my other brother is so unafraid of heights that he gets nothing out of that experience. Me, I seem to be tuned into the sublime here. I don't fear that I'm actually going to fall. I know I'm not going to fall. I'm not afraid. And yet looking down at it, you get just enough of that little dizzying bit of vertigo that it gives you a little thrill, almost like a roller coaster, right? You go on the roller coaster pretty assured that you're going to survive it. And yet it's playing with that pit in your stomach, right? It's playing with the, that, that fear of falling and ultimately of your demise, now, Khan, as I already said, had a complaint as far as Burke was concerned. He thought that Burke did a great job of describing the psychological state. And obviously, even though he doesn't say this in the third critique, which is what we're going to turn to in a moment by Kant, which is where he discusses the sublime, although he doesn't say it, we can see that he's interested in um, Burke's examples here, right? Darkness, but especially vastness and infinity. Those are um, examples that that Kant also will, will mine for a great deal of, of uh, insight. Now, the sublime comes up for Kant because, of course, we're talking about the third critique. In fact, we're talking about the first half of the third critique or the first large section of the third critique. It actually takes up a little more than half of the book. And that's on aesthetic beauty, right? And mostly it's on beauty. He doesn't... Uh, introduced the sublime until toward the very end of the section. And he even says that the sublime is really an addendum to the discussion of beauty. He doesn't see it as being quite as important um, for his purposes. Although, as we'll see, um, other thinkers like uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard uh, says that the, the sublime is actually much more important to Kant's project than he might have realized. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, Kant says that like the beautiful, the sublime pleases it in itself. It has no other end. It's not, it's not like the burger, which pleases me because I'm hungry and I want to I be fed, right? The sublime and the beautiful, they please in themselves. They are ends in themselves in that way. And they involve a reflective judgment, not a determinative judgment, right? Not saying that this is a cat or this is a squirrel or even this is a painting. If all I'm saying about a, a, a beautiful artwork is this is a painting, then I'm not really having an aesthetic experience. I'm just simply labeling it, right? So it's not a determinative judgment and it's not a regulative judgment. It's not me trying to decide um, how I ought to go about doing things, usually in a moral manner, right? It's a reflective judgment. 
And he says that the satisfaction involved in the beautiful and the sublime has to do with the presentation of the object and therefore with the faculty of presentation. Now, presentation here in German is Darstellung, right? And I've sometimes used the word representation in other episodes uh, when I probably should have said presentation, right? And it didn't get me in trouble up until now, but it would uh, at this point, right? Because Kant does make a distinction between presentation, Darstellung, and representation, Vorstellung. Um, and right now he's very interested in this notion of presentation. The faculty of presentation is, most typically for Kant, the imagination. Now, I say most typically because there are contradicting passages where the understanding employs the imagination as the kind of staging point for presentation. But in the context of this passage in the third critique, this area of the third critique, Kant clearly means the imagination. That is the faculty of presentation. Now remember the Kantian terms we've discussed in previous episodes. We have determinative concepts, right? That I see a squirrel and I apply the concept squirrel. It's that my the presentation of the squirrel, right? The way that the squirrel shows up to me in my mind is presented to my my faculties through the imagination, which is just the faculty that takes images and works with them. Right. So imagine in this case, just for a quick illustration, a squirrel running by and I, I don't get a clear view of it necessarily. So what does my imagination do? It takes the various images, the squirrel to my left, uh, the squirrel right in front of me, squirrel to my right that I just experienced as a squirrel ran by and it kind of works with them, it puts them together. Right. Um, so it's not just one sensory image. Right. The imagination is working with images in order to provide a presentation, a Darstellung, and that's what it does. And then the understanding comes along and says, ah, that is a squirrel, I figured it out, and therefore that presentation is subsumed by the, uh, by the determinative concept. Then we have rational ideas, right? The, our, our moral concerns, uh, so morality, freedom, God, the immortal soul, uh, those, those are our concerns with, when it comes to rational ideas. And then you have aesthetic ideas, right? And that's the concern of the third critique. This is stuff we've done in previous episodes, so I'm going to move a little quickly right now. Um, as you know, concepts, determinative concepts, subsume representations. Thus, the concept and the representation are adequated. They fit together. One fits under the other. Rational ideas, though, are concepts for which no presentation is adequate. Now, in a previous episode, I said representation. Again, it didn't get me in trouble then, but it would here. Because actually, for Kant, a rational idea is a representation. Anything in the mind as such, any working in the mind is a representation. But presentations are more limited and in a way more special. The presentation is something that the imagination can present, can put together as a more or less concrete set of images or, or overall all image that it's worked with, that it presents as an example, as a way of illuminating uh, the concepts and so on, right? And so the rational idea is a um, concept for which no presentation is adequate. So think about freedom. I have this idea of freedom, but no act of freedom, nothing that I can come up with, no, no character from a novel, no character from history, no possible character will perfectly embody the idea of freedom. There is no presentation that is adequate to that. 
But remember, the aesthetic idea is different. The aesthetic idea involves represent, uh, rather presentations, right, for which no concept is adequate. That's why it appeals to what we call it an indeterminate concept, because nothing can pin it down. It always creates more thinking, right? The aesthetic idea, as Kant writes, quote, occasions much thinking, though without it being possible for any determinate thought to be adequate to it, end quote. So as I've said before, the rational idea is a concept that outruns the imagination's ability to form a presentation adequate to it. And the aesthetic idea is a presentation in the imagination that outruns reason's ability to formulate a concept adequate to it. So in both senses, we have some kind of inadequacy. And yet Kant still describes the aesthetic situation with respect to beauty as one of harmony. That the imagination and the understanding, in this case, are in harmony. The understanding isn't peeved, right, by the imagination's success in presentation. Uh, even if it does outstrip the understanding's cleverness in conceptual construction. The fact that despite the lack of determinate concept, understanding recognizes the well-formedness of the imagination's presentation, that's enough for the understanding, right? Let me say that again. The understanding recognizes the well-formedness of the presentation provided by the imagination. And that sense of form is consoling, according to Kant. Beauty makes us feel at home in the world. Not because I can say beyond uh, possible further description what it is that is beautiful and what makes it beautiful. I can't do that. But it makes us feel at home in the world because even though we can't determinately say what this thing is as such, we, can, we still have a formal grasp on it. The world accommodates our epistemological forays into the seemingly unknown. But the sublime does not work that way. It operates otherwise. The sublime, as Kant puts it, involves uh, the formless without bounds. Right? So it's not just that it's formless. Because that would be the ugly, right? The sublime is something more than that. It's the formless without it being hemmed in by boundaries. Kant claims that in thinking about the sublime, we witness, quote, a faculty of the mind surpassing every standard of sense, end quote. So the sublime pushes us to the almost arrogant attempt to think the maximum in its totality. Right? Whether it's the maximally great or the maximally powerful. So when you, th when you really think about infinity, that's an example of an experience of, of the sublime. When you really think about it. Think about the, the sort of annoying kid thing that sometimes happens, right? The kid says, I love you, infinity plus one. And you're like, ah, stupid kid. You don't know what infinity means, right? But then you try to explain it to, to them. Think of the largest number you can think and add one, right? Well, I, obviously, that's going to name any number, no matter how many uh, digits long, right? No matter how many commas you have to use, quadrillions and so on, right? You can always add a little more and you can conceptualize that number. And Kant gives a good example of this. Even though Kant says that, that man-made art really isn't the occasion for the sublime, he gives two examples that are man-made art, right? And I think they both operate in interesting ways. One is the pyramids in Egypt. And he says that, that when you get far enough back from the pyramid, then you see the whole thing. It's not a sublime experience. If you get too close, you see the bricks one by one, 
that's not the sublime experience. What's the sublime experience is when you're in the perfect spot, the, the Goldilocks zone, so to speak, right? You're not too far. You're not too uh, close. Uh, and you see somehow the bricks and the hole in a way that is impossible for you to fully reconcile. And that's what happens with infinite numbers. Well, this is the, the mathematical sublime, according to Kant, right? Then I can imagine any number, and I can imagine a number series, and I can keep in my head a pretty good swath of that number series. But if I keep adding one and I keep adding one, I can still keep... I, I, I can sort of move my viewfinder along the number series, but what becomes hard is grasping the totality. And that's what we want to do with our concepts, according to Kant, right? We want to grasp the totality of it, not just piece by piece. So the point of infinity isn't that it's impossible to think about num the number series and, and it continuing to click off. But for Kant, that's a distinction between what he calls apprehension and comprehension. Apprehension's easy. That's the viewfinder. We're just sort of moving along. Well, any number you give me, I can figure it out, right? And I can figure, I can see the, the number series around it. But then backing up and saying, okay, so now what's the totality of it? What's the totality of infinity? What's the totality of the experience of God or whatever? That's where it gets hard. That's the sublime for Kant. That's that, that tricky spot where it's I want to come face to face not just with um, these things that are huge, but I want to grasp them in their totality. I want to do more than the imagination can do. And that's what Kant says is the almost arrogant element here, right? That what happens is when we, when, when we push our imagination like that, we feel a kind of pain. We feel our own inadequacy. He says, quote, the feel, we get a feeling of a momentary checking of the vital powers, and a, then a, but then a consequent stronger outflow of them. Now, where does that come from? Why do we get a, a stronger outflow? He says that because what happens is that nature appears to us as a mere nothing in comparison with the ideas of reason, end quote. In other words, what he says happens is unlike the harmony of nature, unlike seeing the beautiful tree and, we're, and we don't understand exactly why it's beautiful necessarily, it's just beautiful to us and, 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 and it's well formed and that gives us a sense of being in harmony with the world, right, with nature. But the tornado or infinity makes us feel divorced from nature in some way and yet we still grasp it in some fashion, not in a determinative fashion, not like we have a concept that covers the whole thing, but rather our reason gets working on with ra with these rational ideas, right? And that that seem to push out beyond the limits of how our minds work. And so it feels to us in this almost arrogant fashion that we outstrip nature, that we can do something. We're not contained by nature, according to Kant. So we might not be accommodated by the world here in the experience of the sublime we're not accommodated by the world there's a, a a division right but instead of us being the victims of the world we supersede it because even though we're going to and and this uh is pascal right pascal says something similar he says you know even though we're going to die death has no dominion over us because we know about it 
All the other animals, they just die. All the, all the other living things just die. But we have a grasp on it, and that somehow makes us superior to it. We know it's coming. We know all about it, right? Kant obviously feels something similar, that we supersede the world. We surpass it. We have a supersensible destination, as he puts it, beyond it. That's our moral destination. And the sublime taps into that. Now, Jean-Francois Lyotard, in a book called Lessons on the Analytic of the Sublime, where he takes on Kant's ideas about the sublime, he contends that the sublime reveals the kernel of Kant's critical enterprise, in that it exposes the way one relates to the a priori. And as you know, the a priori is the center of how Kant thinks the mind works, right? And how we engage with the world. After all, Lyotard says, what is the a priori for Kant? It's what is always already there as a condition of the possibility of experience, right? We only have experience because there are built-in structures, a prioris, in, in our mind. And then that's how we're able to construct the experience that we have of the world. It's not that there's not things out in the world, but our way of seeing the world has to do with these a priori conditions, right? The conditions of the possibility of experience. Hence, it is the condition for all experience, the a priori is, and is itself unconditioned or absolute. There's no way to condition, there's no way to ground the a priori. So they are a kind of absolute. But now remember that Kant's entire enterprise involves revealing these a prioris and then using them as the foundation for the construction of knowledge and the workings of reason. But when it comes to the absolute, the unconditioned, think of the other examples that Kant gives of the unconditioned, God, the immortal soul, freedom, Kant insists that we can't fully know these things. They become necessary wagers, right? We, we have to act morally, so we act in the manner of what we believe the moral law to be without having a full grasp of it. And the same thing goes with freedom, right? So the, they're wagers. They're not secure knowledge. So then how can he build? This is what Leotard asks. How can Kant build his critical enterprise on the a priori if the a priori is unconditioned, if it is a kind of absolute? The limit of our thought cannot be objects of our thought. We can't see our own limits. Leotard suggests that reflective judgment is the answer to this quandary because it is preconceptual. And so it falls outside of the, the rest of the things that are built on the a priori. And it involves not the method of thinking, but a manner of thinking, the feeling of thought, right? Feeling our way toward um, answers and toward structures. He writes this, quote, the sublime feeling, and all this has to do with the sublime for him, right? This idea of, of, of feeling ourselves separated from the world in some way and yet striving to overcome it, striving to, uh, in an almost arrogant manner, being able to comprehend the incomprehensible. And he writes this, quote, sublime feeling is analyzed as a double defiance. Imagination at the limits of what it can present does violence to itself in order to present that which it can no longer present. Reason, for its part, seeks unreasonably to violate the interdict it imposes on itself and which is strictly critical, the interdict that prohibits it from finding objects corresponding to its concepts in sensible intuition. In these two aspects, thinking defies its own finitude as if fascinated by its own excessiveness, end quote. All he's saying is what I said earlier, that the, the rational idea is the one that outstrips 
It's where the it's where reason outstrips imagination. It outstrips what can be presented. Whereas the aesthetic idea is the imagination outstripping reason. It's it's presenting something that is more um, explicit, more beautiful, more uh, interesting, more well rounded than than what reason can come to grips with. This is think is fascinating because remember, when you're dealing with beauty. You're dealing with the imagination and the understanding in harmony. But what's being suggested here is that when we're dealing with the sublime, then the imagination and reason are not in harmony. They're severed from each other. And they're both trying to do what they do well beyond what they can do. So the imagination is trying to present that which can't be presented. Reason is trying to understand that which cannot be understood. And they're coming into conflict with each other in doing this. And what Leotard says, and I think he's, he might be right about this, is that at least it's an interesting thing to think about, that Kant's entire project is based ultimately on this sublime experience, even though Kant reduces his approach to it to just a few chapters in his third critique. That's the only time he talks about the sublime. There's another book where he talks a bit about the sublime, summarizing some of the things Burke said. But it's not a major part of his output. Let's summarize a few things. The sublime deals with the maximally great, right? And the feeling of almost terror that it inspires. But it's almost terror. We're in a position where we feel safe from the, um, the dangers of that terrible object, right? And yet, we don't feel overly safe. We're not too far removed. So we get the jolt of the terror without the total panic that it would invoke or that it would involve. And that gives us this sense that we can comprehend the incomprehensible and that we can present to ourselves in imagination the unimaginable. That we don't, we're not simply in harmony with the world. We in some way supersede it. And by superseding it, we get the feel for how we deal with the world, right? We get, we get a manner of dealing with it rather than a method. And that's what Leotard is giving us here. We get this approach where we feel our way towards something without having a complete grasp of it. Now, this will prepare us, I hope, for a discussion of the so-called hip-hop sublime, a notion coined by musicologist Adam Crims. And that's what we turn to next.
Musicologist Adam Crims developed the term hip-hop sublime to define a set of, of production um, techniques used in the creation of beats for the subgenre of hip-hop called reality rap, which includes, of course, gangster rap. He basically says that there are two ways that one goes about creating the, the experience on a beat of the hip-hop sublime. One is to have these layers that don't match up with respect to pitch. They're out of tune with each other. They're going to be dissonant uh, just by the fact that they're out of tune, right? So even if they're, they're um, notes that might fit within a similar harmony, the fact that they're out of tune creates a dissonance, right? And this is not a this is not dissonance that's on the level of a sort of measurable by our typical standards, measurable by an interval, right? So imagine, for instance, right C uh, to D flat. Right, that's a minor second. That's a dissonance that we're used. We have a name for it, minor second. Right now, imagine a C, and then a slightly out of tune C that's a bit sharp. Right, doesn't quite make it to C sharp or to D flat, and it's going to grate on your ear a bit. It's going to be out of tune, um, and so therefore dissonant, and yet not to the extent that it becomes a kind of identifiable dissonance. And so it's, uh, for Crims, this is significant. What this is doing is that it's defying our sense of rationality with respect to, uh, to pitch distance, right? If you think of our normal division of the octave into, into uh, uh, 12 uh, semitones, right? Those are measurable distances, and most of us who are acculturated to music within that system, we get used to those those levels, right? And th there is some variability of pitch there, but there's also a space where that variability ends, right? Not every uh, interval of C to C sharp is going to be exactly tuned uh, the same way, uh, depending on, on what band you're listening to, what song you're listening to, and yet there's a sort of threshold, right? And what he's suggesting is that these songs, these, these beats are produced in such a way that that threshold is crossed, that the pitches are out of tune enough that they register not as separate intervals or, or as separate notes within an interval, but rather as tune, tones that are simply out of tune, that are detuned. The other way that uh, one could create the notion of the hip-hop sublime, according to the Crims, is through clashing timbres, right? Sonorities, sounds, tone colors that don't quite go together normally. And this is very typical, uh, of course, in a lot of hip-hop production, but especially in reality rap. Um, and you can hear, for instance, in that first track of the second NWA album, right, that I mentioned before, um, that, that track uh, combines a bunch of different um, samples, including a guitar riff that, that may or may not come from Black Flag. I wasn't able to quite chase that one down. Um, but it also has a horn hit from the tune Scratchin' from Magic Disco Machine and this bell-like sound that comes from Mass Productions' Strollin', right? So on the one hand, you have this heavy metal or, or, or post-punk, whatever you want to call it, um, hardcore punk guitar riff, 
then you have the horn hits from R&B and this bell-like sound um, from the tune Strollin', right? And these timbres clash, regardless of whether or not the pitches clash. Uh, The timbres themselves clash. They seem to come from different registers, not just different genres, but different registers of meaning, right? So there's an incongruency here. Now, sometimes this can be blatant, and sometimes it can be much more subtle, right? And and Crims offers several examples um, in his various writings on on the hip-hop sublime. One of the examples he gives is the Wu-Tang Clan. Can it be also simple? He specifically cites the Raekwon um, uh, remix, right, of, of that same tune. Um, but either one, I think, works quite well for listening to that aspect of the hip-hop sublime, the detuned aspect where um, the samples, that, the various samples that he's using clash. Right. Another good example also that that Crim uh, supplies um, also with RZA doing the production is Gravedigger's uh, tune Fairy Tales. Right. That one's interesting, I think, because it it starts off with this lavish kind of orchestral spinning motive. Right. That at first you might think, well, that's just a bit of kind of uh, high gloss pop production. Right. It almost sounds like it could be something along the lines of, of a Puff Daddy. Uh, it doesn't sound like that, really. But but one one can imagine uh, the sort of orchestral flourish being in a kind of um, uh, shiny suit era Puff Daddy uh, production. And yet somehow this one doesn't quite work that way. And at first it's hard to tell why until the bass and the drum part kicks in. And then you notice that as the the orchestral um uh, flourish descends, it drags a little. It falls out of tune. It calls. It falls out of time as well. It calls attention to the fact that what we're hearing is not an orchestra performing, but rather a recording of an orchestra that doesn't quite. That just slips a little. Another example might be Mob Deep's Shook Ones Part 2. Again, Crims provides that example. And that one's really interesting for a number of reasons. It takes this Hancock, Herbie Hancock piano part from a tune named Jessica, called Jessica, and it slows it down quite a bit. But it also filters it in various ways, right? And it adds some, some vinyl static to it, as though it's a record that's playing, right? The sample itself may or may not have that static in, in it. I'm not sure exactly how Havoc, the, the person who, the producer who, who created the beat, I'm not sure exactly what his method was uh, in all of its details, right? But clearly what he did was he slowed down the sample quite a bit. He made sure that that vinyl hiss was emphasized. And he filters it in such a way that it sounds like it's coming from some far out distance, Right? So it has this sense to it in which you hear that this is a sample that has been worked through, that has been degraded in some fashion. And I think that's part of... Now, now I'm going to diverge a little bit here from some of what Krim says, right? Because what Krim says next is that that um, that there, there are a couple of different things to be taken from this. Let's summarize those first, right? That first of all, what you have here is um, surplus value being 
wrangled out of a lack of value in the ghetto, right? So this is his approach to uh, Kelly's notion of ghetto centricity, that that the ghetto is a place that in post-industrial capitalism has been denigrated to the point and decimated to the point that it has basically no value. And the record companies and the hip hop producers and, and artists have found a way to wrest the kind of surplus value, a value that wasn't already there, and they're creating uh, or wresting the value out of it. Now, notice that it's important that I correct myself they're not exactly creating it. They're creating an opportunity for the ghetto to be exploited. But they didn't create the ghetto, obviously. And they didn't create the set of associations one has with the ghetto. And so this idea of the ghetto is a place of authenticity. The ghetto is a place of danger, but a, a, a kind of real danger. A danger that's more real than our everyday lives. And that's part of what, without saying it, I think Crims must think is going on in the economy of, of gangster rap. That, that people in the suburbs are listening to this because they think that their lives are fake. Or realize that they're fake. In some way. And that their lives, as affluent as they are, are impoverished with respect to realness. And so they're looking for some kind of artistic expression of realness through which they can have a vicarious experience of it. And so the ghetto, which uh, is a place where people suffer, right? And certainly that's real, but it's not a realness to be, um, to be celebrated exactly, is now being celebrated, through, uh, through gangster rap as the site of realness. And a site, as we said before, the gangster represents this possibility of, of expression that's beyond the pale of what most people get to express. So that's one aspect, right? The surplus value. The other aspect I don't buy at all in Crims, which is this idea of, of um, the, the commodity fetish. Right again, this is a Marxist notion, just like surplus value is. But uh, he says that that well, people who listen to this music they argue about what gear, what merch is the most authentic, and so therefore it's this sort of displacement of um, of a way of relating to the ghetto onto commercial um, products. Well, that's true of of all of hip hop and all of popular music. So it's not specific. It's hard for me to see the. Um, uh, hip hop sublime as being a one to one link to commodity fetishism, uh, which is the case with all popular music. So that one I'm not sure that I buy. Don't get me wrong, I think the notion of the commodity fetish applies uh, to the hip hop sublime, just not in the way that Crims suggests that it does. I'll return to that, I hope, in just a moment. Finally, uh, Crims claims that the point of the hip-hop sublime is that you are representing the unrepresentable. And that therefore, right, we, we already saw this in, in the last segment, this notion of representing the unrepresentable, of spurring the imagination, the imagination to try to capture something that can't be readily imagined in its totality. And so it's attempting to grasp something that's beyond its grasp, and yet it gets close, that glimmer right? Gives it some sense of accomplishment. Now, for Crims, the way that that is happening is because of those, those conflicting layers, right? That because they defy the... And again, he doesn't spell this out as clearly as he might, um, but because they defy, defy the, the Western rationality of pitch, 
of the, the 12 uh, fold division of the octave in the semitones because it defies that. It's messing with our sense of how music represents, right? It's like adding colors to the spectrum in some fashion. Although that's not great because colors are gradations. So this isn't a great image. But but seeing how it fails actually might be helpful. Uh, colors have gradation, right? You add a little white to, to say, the pink, and it gets a little uh, rosier or whatever. I, I'm not very good at colors, but you see what I mean. The, the place where one color ends and the next begins or the one shade ends and the next begins isn't super clear right? Because we see them and deal with them as a gradation. But pitch, we don't as much. We don't tend to in, in the West, right? We tend to deal with pitch as though it's discrete. And the, and the intervals um, among those pitches are discrete and measurable. And what Crims is suggesting is that this breaks down because of the layers. Now, that puts a lot of weight on those, those, those layers, those discordant, untuned layers. And as he himself points out, there are several examples um, of, of the hip-hop sublime, of what he would have to take as the hip-hop sublime, and certainly that I would take as the hip-hop sublime, that do not evince this notion of, of the detuned, of the incommensurate. Now, you have to read him carefully to notice that he says that, by the way. Because he slips it in. And it's not in just one of his articles about the hip-hop sublime. It's in several. He slips it in and he says, he says that, that, you know, well, you have the discordant or the, the, um, the timbres that don't necessarily go along together even when um, the, the, the detuning doesn't happen. So he acknowledges that, but he puts so much emphasis on the detuning aspect that you would think that was the, the real crux of the matter here. But it can't be. In fact, I think the real crux of the matter is what we just got to a moment ago. This idea of degradation. That you have a sample and you're calling attention to it as a sample through a means of degrading that sample. Now, that's different from clipping it in certain ways, which goes back to the very beginnings of, of hip-hop, right? Uh, where you're, you're cutting the thing that you're looping, you're cutting it in such a way that it's just slightly disjointed. That's one way, perhaps, to, to deform um, a sample. But degrading is something else, right? That Mob Deep example, Havoc's uh, Shook Ones Part 2, his, his beat for that, I think is a great um, thing to think about there. Or the fairy tales, the grave diggers, right? That one's easier. Let's start with that one. We have that, that orchestral bit, and then as it's on its, uh, making its kind of descent, you hear it drag just a bit. That's a degradation. The sample doesn't sound the way it should. It's drawing attention to the fact that it's not what it is, right? The Mob Deep one is a much more interesting one because it's much more complex, um, where the piano part that Herbert Hancock plays is not only slowed down to the point that you can hear it as a distorted piano, right? You slow an instrument down enough. It doesn't just sound like a lower pitched, slower version of the thing. The audio, auto, audio quality will drag out a bit and you'll notice it almost like a slurring, right? But he doesn't leave it there. He also has it clipped in a kind of funny way, right? And then he also filters it in such a way that it sounds like it's in this murky distance. But it doesn't sound like a real murky distance. 
right? It's not a, it's not, it's not simply like it sounds like it's down the street. It sounds like it's in an impossible distance in this other realm of auditory experience. It sounds like the kind of obscurity that Burke was talking about, that you're hearing this thing in an implausible and impossible to measure distance. And on top of all that is the hiss of the record, right? Which again, I can't help but imagine that Havoc emphasized that in some way, that it's not just part of the, the sample as such. And you see this a lot in instances of the hip-hop sublime. The same thing applies to Can It Be Also Simple, right? The, the RZA track, where you hear that hiss. And that's part of how it connotes distance, distance in time and distance from the source, the proximity to the source of the sound. Because what you realize then is what you're hearing is not the sound as such as it would have been produced by the instruments, but the sound that is being reproduced through the record spinning. And now that calls into question something that I had said earlier in this episode, that part of what gangster rap is about is it's a type of mediation that tries to pretend that it is immediate, right? NWA does that particularly well. Think of the tune Fuck the Police. Think of the urgency in Ice Cube's delivery, for instance, right? And you hear that in all sorts of, of reality rap, of hard uh, core rap. Uh, the same thing is true of Public Enemy. The, 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 uh, the mode of delivery is so in your face, so uh, urgent, in its message, right? And Public Enemy is a great example of this because the Bomb Squad also communicates constant urgency, all those siren sounds, most of which are, again, very clearly mediated. They're not actually sirens. The, the, the siren sound that they use the most is from um, the, a tune called The Grunt by the JBs, right? And it's this saxophone squeal. And yet it sounds like an alarm, it sounds like a car alarm sometimes, or some kind of alarm. And it's meant to connote that kind of alarmed feeling. And yet it's an alarm that's not an alarm. It's a saxophone squeal. And so you see this, I think, in instances of the hip hop sublime, where on the one hand, what you're doing is you're trying to project a kind of immediacy right? Alarms are alarming. That's why they function the way they do. They feel, when you're, there aren't as many car alarms, I guess, anymore as there used to be. When I first moved to the city, they were very prevalent and they would go off all the time in the middle of the night, right? And as you know, people who live in New York City, they don't always park right near where they live, right? It might be blocks away because you're stuck finding parking wherever you can find it. So I'm hearing your alarm and you might not be hearing it. Now, granted, that alarm is a kind of uh, mediation. The alarm is not uh, the sound of the break-in. It's letting me know that a break-in might have occurred. Usually it wasn't a break-in. Usually it was someone just brushing against your car or the wind blowing too hard. It doesn't matter. The alarm is telling me about something that happened. And yet, the alarm is so annoying and so uh, viscerally disturbing that there is a kind of immediacy to it. The alarm is alarming, right? It functions as an alarm because it actually alarms you. 
It disturbs you. It disrupts you. And so it is effacing, erasing in a way, its own media nature in order to feel immediate, in order to feel direct. And gangster rap often does that as well. That's part of that urgency, right? And yet at the same time, when we have tracks like the ones we're talking about now, where you hear the hiss, where you hear the distance, this sort of impossible distance, this obscurity that's been foisted upon it, then you're also very cognizant of the fact that you're dealing with representations. Representations that don't always coincide very well, don't always go together very well. And those representations, and this is why we have to make, another reason we had to make the distinction between presentations and representations, those various representations that are all part of that track are then brought together in one presentation that doesn't quite cohere, that doesn't quite work. It has nothing to do, or at least it doesn't have to have anything to do with the detuned nature. That's just one of the possible ingredients. What it has to do with is a kind of incommensurability of various representations brought together in a single presentation. And that what we realize is that this attempt to be immediate is made possible through a confluence of representations of, of, of various mediations. Now, this then does a couple of things for us with respect to our notions of the sublime and how it might uh, apply to gangster rap. On the one hand, we can see what, what Crims meant when he said that there's a kind of uh, hardness to the whole thing that's, that's represented through uh, the incommensurability. It's just not necessarily the incommensurability that Crims was talking about, but I think he's, he's right that there's a, that there's a element to the tracks that are meant to feel incongruent, incommensurate. We're supposed to recognize that something's a little off, a little wrong. And yet, obviously, it works, right? It's engaging. There's nothing better uh, than, than that Mob Deep um, track, uh, to my mind, right? There's something haunting about it. And part of that haunting nature is its distance, right? It's not, that is not a loud track, that's not like a public enemy alarming track. And yet there is something haunting and disturbing about it in the way that it works, in part because of that distance, because of that distance that doesn't feel like it's just down the hall or down the street, but in some other realm calling out to you from, from afar. Now think about Riza, and can it be all so simple with its use of the Gladys Knight and the Pips uh, to, version of the way we were? Right? Where we hear the 70s, but we also hear that hiss. And we recognize that we're not hearing directly back to the 70s. We're hearing a, a, a mediation. We're hearing a representation of the 70s or of, of one icon, one element of the 70s. And that's another kind of distance that gets explored, right? The seventies. I don't think that's. I don't think that's a uh, mistake that 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 we're talking about the seventies in um, in that particular track. That was the decade of the rise of the post-industrial ghetto, with all of its problems, right? And that's what's being represented in gangster rap is that 
version of the ghetto. We're not talking about the the ghetto of an earlier period in American history. We're talking about the ghettos of the 70s on, this blighted area that's been overlooked and neglected and now has become a source of a kind of strange energy that's that's being tapped into and exploited for commercial means. And this is where I think the commodity fetish comes into play. Right? Because what these producers are doing and all these very different examples of of what we might think of as the hip hop sublime is they're they're dealing with these um commodities, these the the samples themselves and their way of approaching the samples as a kind of um votive object, almost like a religious icon. Right? Where it's not simply that we're reproducing a sound from the past, which is what any sample does, but we're making sure to present it as this object of veneration. Objects of veneration, you don't approach them too closely, right? You maintain a respectful distance. And that tape hiss and the distance of the filtering is part of that. You're allowing those sounds to have a kind of aura that they might not otherwise have. And that's very different from what we're going to see uh, whenever we get to it with G-Funk and these later versions of what winds up happening with gangster rap, right? What we're talking about is is the era before that. the the uh, And that continues and overlaps with that to some extent, right? This era of the hip-hop sublime where the idea really is about distance and venerating these these objects and so the commodity fetish here is a very um literal thing we're making a fetish object a votive object a a religious icon out of these commercial elements and then we're using that as a platform or at least or rather the gangster rappers are using that as a platform in order to try to communicate that kind of urgency that overcomes mediation Right, so you have something that I think is more complicated than than crims allowed, because it's not simply about about um, a mediation that that pretends to be immediate, nor is it simply about a um, a representation that that sort of deals knowingly with its own um, approach to representation. Rather, it's doing both. It's it's this kind of paradoxical element. And that's where it really ties in, for me, to the sublime. And that's why we needed Leotard's um, uh, approach to um, Kant, right? Because if you remember, what Leotard says is that what happens is a kind of um, double defiance, right? That what happens with the sublime is that imagination presents what it can't present, Right? And does violence to itself in order to do so. That in its arrogance, it outruns its own limits. And that reason is doing the same thing. That reason uh, attempts to find objects that correspond to, to its concepts, which it, which it can't do. Right, Rational ideas, the whole point is that they outrun presentations. And so you have this struggle between... Um, reason and imagination, where both do violence to themselves in their attempt to come to grips uh, with with the sublime, right? And 
to me, this is what's essential to the hip-hop sublime. Because on the one hand, we have a form of mediation that disavows its, its status as mediation, that tries to be immediate, that tries to be urgent, right? The alarm is alarming. And so even though uh, on one level we realize that that's a saxophone squeal, its impact in Public Enemy in the, through the Bomb Squad is meant to be alarming. And yet we recognize its mediation at the same time that it acts immediately upon us. On the other hand, we have a commodity fetish created out of various levels of representation, right? Thus the tape hiss, thus the, the distance, the almost quasi-religious distance uh, that some of these samples are, uh, are kept at. And so you have this conflict here between our attempts to grasp something and our attempts to uh, have it presented to us, right? Our attempts to grasp it on a, on a moral, political level and identify with it. That's part of the, the lore of the gangster, right? That's what Bell Hooks taught us in the first segment, that part of what we get out of the gangster is this kind of safety valve for our own desires. But on the other hand, just grabbing a picture of it, getting it in our head properly, having a presentation of it in the imagination feels overwhelming, feels impossible. And yet that seeming overwhelming nature of it, the fact that it feels overwhelming, the fact that it brings us to the border of terror and yet we don't succumb to terror, and the fact that on another level we identify with it, gives us this feeling of inflation, a feeling that we're more than what we are or more than what we've been left to be. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you would like more information about this podcast, please visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com or feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That's cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon.